Hey, sweetie, what do you think of our new car from Carvana? Think it can handle our busy family? Well, we have seven days to see. First, we can take the scenic route to the beach and stargaze through the moonroof. We'll see if your drums fit in the trunk. Then we can pick up Mommy's friends and check out that leg room. And we should really visit Grandma. She's getting up there. That's like a whole lifetime in seven days. And like one busy family. With our seven-day money-back guarantee, you can confidently shop for cars 100% online. Visit Carvana.com for all terms and conditions. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We can't sort of, you say I'm anti-aging, you're kind of saying, well, I'm anti-living. And the other part of healthy aging as well is that, you know, we do plan for the future and having purpose and working towards things is a really important part of human existence, but we also can't exclusively live that way. And, you know, setting yourself as a goal, I want to live as long as humanly possible. Like, what does that even mean? Like, yeah. I hate to say it, but you are still going to die anyway. Yeah, and, and it could be from any cause. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And so I think you've got to find that, for me, healthy ageing is really actually healthy living and feeling as best as possible in the here and now. Fantastic to be back with you here, as always. We're proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. Learn more about Neon Treehouse and check out their offer in our show notes. Creole are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose and their delicious healthy sodas are ideal for those looking for a bubbly and refreshing alternative to sugary sodas or just a break from the booze in general. Check out the great deal we've got lined up in our show notes. As you may be aware, our new membership model is in full swing and current members like Andrew 1, 2, Nikki, Margaret, Ben, Misha and Chris are now enjoying great benefits via our Supercast platform, including early access to all episodes, all episodes ad-free, full transcripts of every episode, my five key takeaways from each episode, personal audio notes on every episode and broken introductions to all podcast guests. To get your membership and to support our sustainability, just hit the link in our show notes under membership or head directly to humansofpurpose.supercast.com. If you are a values-aligned organization seeking to connect with our wonderful audience, we're offering just a few more promotional packages for the year for guests to appear on the show, along with a number of other promotional perks. To learn more, just hit the link in our show notes or head to humansofpurpose.com. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Kate Gregorovich to the podcast. I discovered Kate on Twitter and was thoroughly impressed with her balanced and informed commentary on a range of topics, including but not limited to public health, COVID-19 analysis, health and well-being, and her discussions around exercise, longevity, and healthy aging. Kate is a geriatrician and internal medicine physician, PhD, and author of the book Staying Alive that explores the science of living healthier, happier, and longer. She's also the co-founder of Project 3612, a provider of at-home exercise and well-being programs designed to give women over 40 the tools they need to improve strength and vitality for long-term sustainable health. This is a great conversation with Kate, where I ask all the probing health and well-being questions around aging that I've been storing up for years. I also try to wrap my head around how Kate is able to do everything she does and her journey, including everything I've just mentioned above, plus managing a husband and three kids. 
hope you enjoy this conversation with Kate as much as I did. So I am thrilled to be here with Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you on, Emma. As I was saying before, um, I just love the way you write on Twitter. It's just so like personable but informative and you've got a lot of traction there. And then I did a bit of dig- um, deeper digging and fascinated by your background in medicine and internal medicine, geriatrics and um, healthy aging and, and your business interests too. So really glad you could join me today. Yeah, thank you. Let's get into it in the usual humans of purpose way and talk just a little bit about your career journey and maybe just to frame that, have you always wanted to do medicine and geriatrics in particular? When I finished school, I was pretty determined not to do medicine. My father was a doctor. And a lot I could of just, pressure there. A lot of, well, you know, I was like, I could just see how hard he worked and he's a GP and my gosh, GP is so hard. You know, everyone says specialist seems hard, but like I only have to know a lot about a little bit. For a GP, you have to know a lot about everything. And you have to do it in six-minute intervals. That's right. And <laughs> All day. So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so I went up to university and started an art science degree because I've always had a really broad range of interests. But I got into it, you know, I love the science, but then I really wanted to know how I could apply that to help people. And so that was fundamentally why I decided to study medicine. And then within that, I didn't always want to be a geriatrician. I actually... Um, Started off doing some sort of training in a different area, but after I had my first child, geriatrics was the one where they would offer me a part-time position. And so it was a bit serendipitous, but then I also loved it because the thing about geriatrics compared to a lot of other areas of medicine, it is very broad, but it's also our goal isn't to make things perfect. You know, it's not to make perfect blood sugars or perfect blood pressure because my patients, most of them have already lived a very long life. My job is to step back and say to the person, what matters to you? What's the most important thing to you? Mm. And then to work from there. So not just looking at the, you know, biological side of things, the physiology, but also looking at those social components, the psychological well-being and health. That's fascinating. And, um, you know, just for the lay people out there who aren't medical or married to medical people who just destroy their lives. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, love you, Louise. Um, Just curious, you know, what is the normal career? Like how much training do you do and how many years does it take to get qualified in in a role like um, internal medicine and geriatrics? Yeah. So you do your, I did a three-year science degree. Then at the time I did medicine, it was four and a half years. But now as a graduate, it's four years. Then I did intern year, then you do three years of basic physician training. My eyes are already <laughs> yeah, glazing yeah. over a bit. <laughs> And then you do another three years of subspecialty training. And as part of that, I did a PhD as well, which is pretty normal in my in physician specialties. And now it's sort of increasingly popular for doctors to become double doctors and do a PhD too, right? Just for research too? It's Yeah, it's pretty popular. It's also, it's very good for your career and sometimes to get jobs in certain places it kind of comes essential but you know the other thing for me I love doing my PhD I found it such a good chance to step back and think I help build new skills it's really enhanced my ability to be a good doctor and and do you think how much do you think research helps you in practice as well Oh, hugely. Like number one, you know, we need to stay up to date and read research papers if you've done some research yourself you've got a better ability to read research papers. And also I feel like I'm hopefully, you know, going to be able to help contribute to better care for my patients, you know, improving the health system. So it's really opened up a lot of really good opportunities and just makes my career more satisfying. Fantastic. And just a a general question about working with older people. I mean, a lot of the things that I hear from friends who work um, in the geriatric space or with older people is that they just... um, 
they might be facing physical difficulties, but they're generally very happy and a lot happier than a lot of younger people. Look, it's really interesting, you know, like I said, you know, my favourite question is what's important to you? Yeah. And no one's ever said to me, I want to live as absolutely long as possible, you know, no one in the 80s and 90s. Mm. I love hearing the answers. It's things like... I want to go dancing with my wife. You know, this 90-year-old man <laughs> who'd been married for, you know, 60 years. Yep. Like, it's just gorgeous. Yep. And it just – it or, you know, people want to spend more time with their families. They love their gardens. It just – people have got perspective. You know, they've worked out what matters. Yeah, and I, it's sort of interesting how that dialogue meshes against some of the other um, – I call them anti-aging movement people out there who are kind of um, – Talking about um, the goal being to live to 150 or potentially forever. Would you like to live to 150? No, I actually like it's. I, I don't. I don't actually go out of my way to try and live as humanly long as possible because life's too uncertain. Mm. You know, and we love this concept that we've got complete control over everything, but you know we don't. <laughs> and one cautionary tale was a man who was a researcher in the crony diet, which is caloric restriction with optimal nutrition. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it basically means eating as little as possible. (laughs) And it's the most evidence-based way to extend your life with Mm -hmm. diet because Mm -hmm. it's actually been looked at in macaque monkeys. Yeah, I saw a guy doing it who was – and the food he was eating just looks awful. So this guy devoted his life to it, Mm. hardly ate – Died at 75 of motor neuron disease. <laughs> there you like, go. They don't tell that you that in the documentary. <laughs> That's right. Like, That's not fair. He guy, did everything he could. He could, He did. But, like, if he'd eaten a bit of cake every now and then, yep. it probably wouldn't have made a difference. And also I wonder whether, like, eating the cake and the happiness kick you get from that is better for your physiology anyway. Like your body kind of – we're so conditioned for pleasure and pain that maybe that's a good thing to have occasional pleasures too. I mean, food is not an occasional pleasure. Food is Constant a many pleasure. times a day pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not not for that guy. <laughs> not for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, there's so much out there about different things we can be doing. And I think that the, what I would call the sexy part of the healthy ageing movement is like the longevity movement. And uh, I'm curious to get your take on a, a couple of things that come up um, for me in, in my space a fair bit, uh, things like the emerging research around hot and cold therapy, I find particularly interesting. And then, you know, um, intermittent fasting, which you've kind of talked more or less vaguely about, but um, and also even supplementation and NAD plus and some of this other kind of emerging less substantiated stuff. So what are your thoughts on um, these sorts of above things and also the level of evidence supporting them? Yeah, so I guess starting with the hot and cold thing, you know, the Finnish people, a lot of this comes from Finland, they love their saunas. And there's some really interesting research that people who spend more time in saunas, they've got um, better cardiovascular health, they might decrease the risk of dementia. Um, You know, it seems to be a really important, enjoyable part of their culture. There's one really interesting and actually really well-conducted randomised controlled trial that looked at saunas and depression. And the thing that's really nice about this trial is they had a really good going sham hotbox. So, how do you have a sham hotbox? Yeah, I know, right? How do you um, do that? That's ama- like to be able to do that. So, yeah. so <laughs> they, they made a box with like orange lights in it. Oh, wow. Because that's one of the things that's really complicated in research, right? Especially if you're measuring something like depression. Yeah. Is that placebo effect? Yeah, getting the control group right. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so people in this trial, mm. people, did, people genuinely didn't know if they'd been in the hotbox or not. Were they sweating? Well, you know, they do wonder if they made this sham a little bit too hot. Yeah. But they still yeah. found a significant difference that people who'd been in the hot box had better depression scores. So we know, and maybe if you could just speak a bit to, you know, the 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 gold standard in research being the RCT and why that's important versus people anecdotally saying that saunas make me feel better. 
Yeah, that's right. Like I was looking at studies recently and looking at iron deficiency and they took people with iron deficiency and they gave them iron infusions and then they all said they feel better. Like you can't trust that because unfortunately we all kind of like to believe in our therapies, believe in totally. our treatments. Yep. And so you need to, ha- you know, for that trial to really prove that you're getting an improvement in fatigue, you need to have a sham arm of people with people getting an infusion of, you know, just normal saline, like salty water or something, so that you're not getting people just believing they've had a treatment and so believing they should feel better and reporting that back to the researchers. Yeah. And you've also got to blind the people collecting the outcomes. Yep. So um, neither the conductor of the trial or the participant um, or the doctor knows who's in what group yeah, until that's the right. end of the trial. Yeah. Yeah. Because as much as we all like to um, – pretend it's not true. We all have our own internal biases. We all have our own belief systems and we all like to look for things that confirm those belief systems. Oh yeah, confirmation bias. <laughs> Don't <laughs> talk to me enough about that. Um, and what about cold therapy? I mean, have you read much about the, the evidence there? I mean, I know that it's, you know, the Wim Hof movement and everything yeah. kind of sparked a lot of interest in that. And there's lots of people around my neighbourhood who like to get to the beach at ungodly hours, like 4am and fully submerge. What have you heard there? Look, again, like it's, you know, there's some research into it and it it makes, it's one of these things like if it makes people feel better, great. And things like, you know, cold therapy, going for a beach swim or, you know, going to a sauna a couple of times a week. It's one of these things that it's really unlikely to cause harm. Mm. It's enjoyable. It might be a group bonding thing. It might make you feel better. It's not costing a fortune. These are the sort of things, you know, it's harder to do research on these things because obviously you can't patent going for a cold swim, make a ton of money from it. And so... It's not a drug. It's not a drug. (laughs) You can't patent the beach. (laughs) So it is one of these things that like it's sometimes it's harder to get these studies funded. Mm. And so we might never get, you know, quite the same level of evidence. But at the same time, if it's helping someone feel better, fantastic. Would it be great though, as a sort of like a, a public incentive to do those sorts of things to have because it's free? And yeah. like, you know, if it was more government funding around what are the free things we can do to really optimize our health and well being? And if you knew, like, if you told everyone that if you go to the beach for a cold swim a few times a week and sauna a few times a week, um, your average well being is going to just skyrocket and you have protection against all these illnesses, I think that'd be really interesting from a public policy standpoint. Would it change behavior? Would it change? how we behave and our sort of habits. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I'd love to see more public policy and more funding focused on prevention. Mm. I think it's one of the biggest gaps we have. You know, we all know that in developed countries like Australia, the things we're all likely to die from are chronic non-communicable diseases like heart disease, dementia, lung disease. And if you look at funding more prevention, more community involvement, you know, rather than fixing the things once they're broken – potentially we could just make such a difference in society. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just getting back onto medicine, I am conscious that you're juggling a huge amount of things, including three kids and also being a woman, I know that's very difficult in the medical profession. Um, You face a lot of maybe unconscious bias or actually conscious biases and and can make the trajectory a challenge at times, especially following my wife's career through cardiology and PhD. Also, I, I wonder how you manage your time and juggle it all and also whether you've sort of faced challenges along the way. Yeah, look, it's definitely um, physician training. Our, you know, it's not set up to be kind to women taking time out to have children. And, you know, a great demonstration of that, I don't know any male trainees who've taken extended periods of paternity leave. I'd love to see it happen, but it has such an impact on your career progression mm. that men just don't do it. Mm. Um, women, you know, don't have as much choice when yep. you're having the baby. Yeah. 
But and especially, I suppose, in two doctor couples, that makes things even more complicated. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If they're both in training programs. Yeah, you know, it's a bit more freedom once you finish. So sometimes, you know, if you're a bit further along, you've got that chance, but it's really difficult. Mm. And, you know, the reason I've been able to progress my career despite having, you know, kids through training, et cetera, I mean, I've had some great, um, you know, career champions, actually men who've really supported me through. Um, and also, you know, I don't do it all at home. My husband and I very much share the load with the kids. We're very equal. Is your hubby medico? No, he's not. He's an engineer. Congratulations. Thanks. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I just hear it's easier to have like not two non-medic, one non-medical partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, got, it's got definitely got its pros. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so was it difficult to sort of like get the timing right with when you had your kids? I mean, look, my mother always says there's no good time to have a baby. Yeah. You know, they're always quite inconvenient. <laughs> and, you know, what I would say, like I said, my husband and I were very lucky we didn't have fertility troubles, but yep. you sort of don't know till you try. Yep. And so I think that, you know, women shouldn't have to put off having kids if it's, you know, if you're ready in the rest of your life, the world needs to change. Totally. Well, I mean, I can say from my personal um, experience, we waited a lot longer than I would have liked to mm. have kids. Um basically because we were so concerned about um, Louise not being able to progress in her career. Um, and that was sort of made pretty clear at various points. So it's a, it's quite a cost because, you know, um, to, to kind of not have the freedom to do what you're ready for in your life because of your career, it, it's a real trade-off, isn't it? Oh, it's a huge cost. And, mm. you know, some women pay or some couples pay a huge price mm. because, you know, you get set, past a certain age and fertility declines as well. And I think that, you know, as said. I'm now lucky I'm in a position where I can advocate for other people and support people and Mm. the culture is changing, unfortunately. It's not changing equally across every part of medicine. Different specialities are a bit different, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And, you know, there's still a huge power imbalance when you're a trainee and someone's more senior Mm. because, you know, when you're a trainee, you're on Can't say anything. You can't say no to anything. You're on a yearly contract and you have to reapply for your job every year. Yeah. It's tough, tough out there. Yes. Very difficult conditions. Um, and speaking of, you know, keeping all the plates spinning, um, husband obviously plays a big role. Shout out to the husband. Yes. Um, but tell me about all the different things you're doing because I know there's Project 3612, you've got research, um, you've got a full-time appointment um, at the hospital. Um, like how do you break up your, your day, week, month, and how does it all kind of gel together for you? Look, it's kind of hard to say what any typical week will look like. Mm. It changes a little bit depending on what's on. Sometimes I've got more clinical work, sometimes I've got less, sometimes I've got more other meetings and things or a bit more flexibility. But I think for me the reason I do so many things is they all feed into each other. Mm. And I really enjoy variety. I really enjoy cognitive challenge. I've got this kind of burning desire to always be learning and doing something new. And so I'm kind of happiest and most productive when I've got lots of different things on the go. Makes me very happy to hear that. Um, and what about in terms of like practical tools and just making sure your energy levels are good? Do you have things that you you like to do as part of routine to, to keep yourself sort of vibrant and, you know, be able to face all that yeah. plate spinning? Yeah. So the things that I do, I am very, very diligent with my sleep. So I'm an eight hours of sleep a night person. I yep. never stay up late working because it just, it ends up, it makes me non-productive yep. in the longer term. Yep. I do get up very early because that's my me time, my quiet time in the morning. Yep. How um, early are we talking? Oh, like 5.36. Okay. Yeah. 
bearable. Yeah, bearable. That's mm. right. Yeah. Yeah. Better when daylight savings ends and the light <laughs> comes back though. <laughs> yeah, it's never pleasant waking up in the complete no, dark. No. And um, what about the other things like exercise, yep, so, eating? Yeah. So I'm, I exercise about. Uh, I do sort of four sessions a week of proper exercise, but I also live close to work. So I'm able to walk or ride my bike every day. So I'm a very active person because that makes me more energetic, more focused. Yeah. Um, I also, I eat really well. Yeah. And so I don't really eat ultra processed foods. I don't eat, you know, like my breakfast will be like steel cut oats with chia seeds and some nuts in there. Beautiful. You know, lunch will often be a salad. So I find eating that way, it makes me feel full. I really enjoy getting so many different flavors and textures in my food and I don't get the sort of ups and downs you can get. Mm. And, you know, I'm not like total, you know, uh, I don't miss out on stuff. Like, you know, once a week I'll, every now and then I'll have some ice cream. You've already advocated for cake before, which is uh, good. I've already advocated for cake. I'm pleased about that. That's right, yeah. But as a bite, you know, general everyday thing, eating that way. Mm. And also making time that, you know, enjoyable fun time. And especially, you know, with kids, like it's very easy to spend a lot of non-quality time together. You know, have you done your music practice? Put your shoes on. You need to tidy your room, you know. And so making sure, you know, I get time to sit down and play and or do fun events or, you know, take the family out for dinner. And it seems like, you know, again, all these things seem counterproductive to productivity. Mm. But I think if we don't have that downtime, if you're just constantly on the grind, you can become really worn out and inefficient and stale. And so by really sort of making sure those things are priority, I'm much better at getting my other work done. So let's talk first of all about food. Um, Obviously there are a huge range of spectrum from the carnivores to the vegans and, (laughs) you know, the the intermittent fasters and everything in between. Um, Are you a meat eater or what's your kind of balance of um, meals that you like to consume? Yes, I'm I'm an omnivore. Actually, no, I don't eat eat dairy, but that's because I'm dairy intolerant. It's not something I recommend to other people. It's a great source of calcium. Yeah. But, yeah, I generally eat most everything. You know, the thing about nutrition research is spectacularly complex Mm. and – Based on epidemiological data, yeah. a lot of it, isn't it? It is, it is. Mm. And epidemiological data is really valuable. Like mm. it has a lot of value. But at the same time, if you do a study and you ask people about 20 different vegetables and you look at an outcome like, you know, say, um, like, you know, are you happy? You know, we call statistical probability yeah. 5% or 1 in 20. Yeah. So there's going to be a chance that one of those vegetables will then be associated with being happy. And like which vegetable out of those vegetables well, that's, Yeah, it's just random, like yeah. random chance, and, you know. And also did you actually use your food journal correctly? Because yeah, I've heard exactly. that that's a huge issue in, um, in that kind of research too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. People are very often very inaccurate. <laughs> How many bl- broccoli florets were there consumed on that night exactly. versus carrots? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there are, there are challenges. But I think when you read a lot of these things, some real themes come out in nutrition mm-hmm. research and that is like eating your vegetables is really good for you. Mm-hmm. Eating your leafy greens is really good for you. Um, avoiding ultra-processed foods, so you know things like the crackers, biscuits, um, a lot. Basically, a lot of the food in the middle of the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's yeah. designed to be stay around the outside. Of stay the around supermarket. the outside. Yeah, yeah. that's just designed to be super palatable mm-hmm. and to really overcome your body's own satiety signals. Mm-hmm. The only problem is now they're um, flooding the outside of the supermarket with Easter eggs and that's dangerous for everyone. <laughs> it really is. I love the Easter eggs. <laughs> Something about egg-shaped chocolate is irresistible to me. It's just so much tastier. <laughs> it's much tastier. There's no logical basis um, behind it really. No. So where do you stand on red meat? Do you try and limit it, have it a bit? Look, 
there's, you know, with red meat concerns, like I, I obviously the environmental concerns are a big concern, yeah. and you know, farming cows produce a huge amount of methane. Yep. Um, Grass fed. But yeah, I I said I eat red meat. Yep. I'm pretty prone to iron deficiency, mm-hmm. and iron tablets really upset my stomach. Yep. So I've tried not to eat it. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, but I go to my. I've got a really fantastic local butcher who gets all his meat, knows where it all comes from. Now, Perfect. of course, this costs. More, yeah. So I don't eat a lot of it, yeah. But that's how I kind of settle my ethics and I guess my own health and well-being needs from eating that red meat. Yeah, that's great. And do you try and look for um, grass-fed over regular, or you're happy either way, grain-fed, pasture? I, I only buy grass-fed. Yeah, me too. I'm the same. I think that's really interesting. I, I have the exact same thoughts about red meat. Generally, if I'm going to eat it, I'll go to a butcher at Paran Market that I know who only does the grass-fed, and I'll just buy that, and I just think it tastes a lot better, and I'm more comfortable on every front. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. slight red meat <laughs> diversion there, but it's good to know. And when you, when you talked about four sessions of exercise a week um, or, or a focused exercise, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I do strength training twice a week mm-hmm. and then I do yoga twice a week. And then I said my cardio is a lot more of that incidental cardio. Yeah. Um, and the strength training is something I think is just so important you know, as a healthy aging person, yeah. when I'm 90, I plan to be able to, you know, spring out of my chair yeah, and go yeah, on adventures. Totally. That's right. Or at least not fall. At least not fall. That's a great start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where you got to go first and then you get all the other stuff on top of that. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, I know that as a woman, maintaining my muscle mass, because women have a lower peak muscle mass mm-hmm. than men, I know that's really important to me staying healthy and well mm. as I get older. So this is really getting into your expertise around healthy ageing. So let, let's get into that and also Project 3612. Um, before we do that, let's just sort of frame what do we mean when we say things like healthy ageing? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting construct. And, you know, ageing, unfortunately, in our society has got a lot of negative connotations. And really, when you break it down, ageing is living, you know, Aging, if you look at the biological side of things, it's all those cellular processes that keep us alive. And so it's we can't sort of, if you say I'm anti-aging, you're kind of saying, well, I'm anti-living. And the other part of healthy aging as well is that, you know, we do plan for the future and having purpose and working towards things is a really important part of human existence, but we also can't exclusively live that way. And, you know, setting yourself as a goal, I want to live as long as humanly possible. Like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I hate to say it, but you are still going to die anyway. Yeah, and, and it could be from any cause. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And so I think you've got to find that, for me, healthy ageing is really actually healthy living and feeling as best as possible in the here and now. Well said. Perfect, perfect description. Um, and so has the past couple of years sort of changed how you think about healthy aging, just especially with the pandemic and a lot of focus on people's mental health and well-being, and also um, turning towards maybe a resilience mindset a little bit? Has that sort of changed how you think about aging? Look, it's been, obviously, it's been quite a two years, really. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Let's hope we're all we're all done with that. Yeah. But, you know, like, uh, I don't think any of us ever imagined living through a lockdown like we did, you know, and I think for a lot of us, it's, you know, it's left its psychological marks. Mm. And I work in a hospital. I work with older adults. Obviously, I've seen how severe COVID is in older adults. You know, I've seen how, or even, you know, we've had a few younger people, but by and large, people were older. And, you know, it's a terribly dangerous virus for that group, or at mm. least it was in the pre-vaccine era. Yep. Um, it's very different now in the vaccine era. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I also see the people who 
they didn't walk very much because they were scared to go out of their house and they've really declined and their physical fitness is never coming back. Mm-hmm. I see people who have, you know, become profoundly depressed because they were separated from their families. Yep. So it, I think that, you know, it, this, it really brings home the point that there's no such thing as perfect health. Yeah, well said. I guess it's a journey for everyone. Yeah, and, you know, there's like we had a bit of – I think there's a bit of an idea, a myth of sort of perfect safety and if you just did X, Y, Z behaviours, mm. you know, or it was only irresponsible people who got sick and – Oh, there's a lot of blame, wasn't there? So much blame. Especially the – it's interesting in the language around COVID around when they decided to start naming who has comorbidities uh, as well, I thought was quite interesting. Oh, look, it is interesting. But then again, like people – if you shut down the conversation about comorbidities, you're often doing it from a place of privilege. Yeah. Because if you don't talk about differences, yep. you don't create equity. Yeah. Maybe there was a bit of a feeling on the other side that it, it's kind of a blame thing. Yeah, like, definitely. Like, yeah. like because you have comorbidities, you were rec- you know, you had to be even more careful. You weren't careful enough, mm. so you got COVID. Yeah, it is 100%. Like, yeah. And, you know, I I mean, I wrote about this for The Guardian because mm. I saw all these people with COVID and they caught it from their household, they caught it at work. Yep. You know, one person, poor person had been given conflicting advice from um, people who he believed to be medical professionals, whether he should get vaccinated or mm-hmm. not. Like it's it wasn't people being reckless and careless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And, I mean, I thought you were – the job that you did during COVID just from a public health education standpoint was terrific, especially on Twitter. Have you always sort of used Twitter to communicate your, your thoughts on health and wellbeing? Yeah, no, so Twitter, um, which is fun but also massive time sink, um, <laughs> <laughs> I started getting a lot more outspoken on Twitter a couple of years ago. Yep. And it, Twitter's a great place actually for keeping up to date with a lot of research. Oh, fantastic. Really interesting. Yep. Um, Journalism I, too. Yeah, that's right. But I also sort of felt like with my background I could provide some useful commentary on things, mm-hmm. um, you know, particularly breaking down some scientific studies or I guess trying to decrease some of the stigma around, you know, well, it was, like it was, COVID. wasn't it just sort of a barrage of confusing information and often misinformation just everywhere during that two-year period? Oh, it's, yeah, I know, we've all been confused. <laughs> but, you know, and things have changed a lot mm. and, of course, they have because, as I said, we're now in the post-vaccine era. Mm. But I think it's really hard sometimes for people to make those adjustments. Yep. You know, we had to change our lives so much. And the vaccines, you know, they're amazing at preventing severe disease, but we all know they're you're not going to prevent you know, we're still probably all going to catch COVID at some point. Yeah, and like maybe just the focus being um, not ending up um, as acute as you could That's be right, and yeah. in hospital being yeah. a really important conclusion from the vaccine program. Exactly, exactly, yeah. which is fantastic. It's really a great thing. So um, you wrote a book a couple of years ago. Um, and what was it called? Staying Alive. Staying Alive, yeah, I had that here on my nose. <laughs> Sorry about that. And you did talk about a number of studies on the impacts um, of positive psychological, psychosocial factors in the development of frailty in older, older adults. So I just love like a little bit of a sort of thought from you as to what you learned from writing that book and what some of the sort of the key takeaways were for you. Yeah, look, it's really interesting when you sort of break down all this stuff. And, you know, there's some fascinating work out of Europe where they looked at people's so frailty. So frailty is a measure of someone's kind of physical reserve. Mm-hmm. And so someone who's elderly and frail, uh, something that's seemingly minor in something, you know, like a cold mm-hmm. for them can be enough that it, you know, their body's already working so hard at mm-hmm. all times that then they can't, you know, they might fall over, they can't get out of a chair. And frailty is a better predictor of mortality than age in older groups. So oh, wow. once you're over 80, mm-hmm. it's more about your physical, you know, physical health mm-hmm. and your physical um, reserve yep. than age alone. Yeah. 
And so what was really interesting in a study in Europe is that people who had more social supports, even if they were frail, did better. Yep. And I think it really brings in that, you know, health, human health, it's not as simple as just exercise, sleep, nutrition. Like to be truly healthy, you've got to have community. You've got to have connection. Totally. And just those things that aren't about what you can control with your own behaviours and your own body, it's about other people supporting you and making you feel safe and secure mentally and feeling mentally healthy I think is vitally important. Um, For myself, I noticed the difference that um, when I'm exercising regularly, I feel a lot better about myself and I think my health and well-being mentally improves a lot as well. And I think that's probably an increasingly important factor in ageing too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm. And so it's it's one of these things that like it's not, you know, it's not enough just with all of these things with ageing. We also need to think about creating a healthy community. Mm-hmm. You know, something like um, if you live in an area that's got really good walkability, you know, you'll go for more walks. Mm-hmm. You can walk to the shops. But some people can't access any shops without getting in a car. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's about changing our built environment as well. Mm. Yep. And changing things to sort of support healthy aging. Um, and so tell me about how you came up with your with your business, um, Project uh, 36 to 12. Um, what's in the name, first of all, and what's in the mission of the organisation? So it's uh, we're asking people to do um, three strength sessions um a week, and then there's, a, there's also exercising a total of six times a week, mm-hmm. so alternating that with other things, and each course goes for 12 weeks. And the reason we did that is, as I was alluding to before, it's one of these things, women have a longer life expectancy than men, yep. but in worse health. So when you walk into a nursing home, you see a lot more women and men than men, and mm-hmm. it's because women are so much more likely to have disability in older age, and it's like acquired disability, and the biggest cause is actually inactivity. Yep. And only 17% of women actually managed to meet the Australian guidelines for activity, including um, which is 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise, mm-hmm. including two strength sessions a week. Is that the WHO guidelines or? I think it's WHO. I think yeah. WHO is 150 minutes or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I get these but, updates on my But also, also with the two strength sessions. And with the two strength sessions. The so Women often are very surprised when I tell them how important strength training is. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are because mm. I, I've got the feeling that it was cardio, cardio, cardio. That's all we heard for a long time in terms of weight control and weight management and general health. Um, and then, you know, yoga is sort of being an important mind-body thing to do as well. But um, recent years, yeah, strength, ta- strength training is a balanced sort of modality has become, you know, really important. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we know that, again, with the cause of disability in older age, things like osteoporosis Mm. is a, you know, major contributor. And isn't there something like grip grip strength is actually a really good indicator of health and well-being? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, your grip strength is a good predictor of all sorts of things. (laughs) That's why why when I I actually – I've joined a fitness cult. It's called Body Fit, and I'm, okay. I'm a bit ashamed. Have you heard of it? I haven't heard of that cult. It's like F45 and all these other kind of things where they they basically hook you on group exercise with good music and data and everything, and it's very optimised. And anyway, um, what I try and do when I go in there because I heard about that group thing is I just hang, like I'll hang from a <laughs> high bar and just see how long I can hang for. And I think, oh yeah, 45 seconds. I think I'm I think I'm very fit at the moment. That's great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> little uh, personal anecdote there. And so why do you think it is that the women are just not doing enough? And like as a starting point, 17% you said. So Yeah, uh, look, I think it's I think it's a knowledge gap. Yeah. But there's also a lot of barriers. You know, like mm. I, I started really getting into strength training after my third child, mm-hmm. but I was doing women's only postpartum 
exercise. Yep. And so, you know, the trainer was all like all about making sure you're protecting your pelvic floor. Yeah. But so much discussion about pelvic floor. That's right. And yep. a lot of women, they never get proper pelvic floor rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. So then you, you know, if you try and lift the wrong way and you've got pelvic floor problems, you can make it worse. Mm-hmm. Um then I think, you know, just knowing how to do it correctly. And if you know if you go and lift weights, you can injure yourself if you don't learn the technique. And yep. also build up really carefully. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we do in our program, you know, it's it's all about building your strength sustainably and carefully. So you're not going to do too much straight away and get an injury. Mm, okay. Um, so what what was kind of the – was it was it observation and sort of thinking there's a clear need for an intervention here that sort of sparked the, the Project 3612 program? Yeah, it's just that seeing, you know, I was seeing obviously my patients but also seeing them with their – daughters who are in their 50s or 60s, yep. you know, and it's that sandwich age. Yep. And it's when a lot of women are going, oh, actually, I can see my mum's going downhill and I really do want to stay a bit inactive. Mm. But they're caring for mum, they're caring for their teenage children, they are often needing to work because they're trying to get up some money for retirement. And often people feel, as I said, time is an issue, but also sometimes a lot of women feel embarrassed to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go to the weight stream in the gym and I was there the other day and there's like nine people, two two of them were women, women. Mm-hmm. one of them was me. Yeah. And it can be really intimidating to get started if yep. you haven't got the right environment. Yep. Um, and, you know, unfortunately as well in our society, we've got such a fixation on a certain body type yep. as being the most valuable and mm-hmm. fit. And if mm-hmm. you're not that body type, you're not fit. Yep. And so we wanted to try and give women the confidence, you know, building up at home, getting some skills up. So they could build that confidence up to feel like they could properly engage in exercise. And how's it going in terms of numbers, enrolment and um, growth of the program overall? Oh, I mean, look, growth, you know, it's been a challenging couple of years and yep. we just gotten geared up to go and start doing some proper promotion and speaking engagements and yep. then everything kind of, you know, COVID hit the hit. fan. Yep. Yeah. And so we've done what, you know, done what we can, but we certainly haven't been able to get it out there as much as we would really like. Yeah. Well, this is a good opportunity. This is a getting it out there moment. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Push it right out there. Yeah. So who would be your kind of target audience for the program? Yeah. So it's women sort of in there, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. they're generally our target mm-hmm. audience. So the yep. program's been designed by an exercise physiologist. So that's someone who's done a university degree in exercise training and she's actually just finishing a PhD in bone and muscle health. So wow. she's really an expert on optimising bone and muscle health for ageing. You two would have some incredible conversations about, you know, best practice and latest research in that front. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. And, and how did you link up together? We um, we sort of just came across each other through we um, through working. In, we came across her through work and then we got talking and we both had this sort of shared vision and shared passion. That's amazing. What a way to – so you kind of had the same similar thoughts and did the idea kind of – come as a result of bouncing back. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. As you know, we we're a, we just want to really encourage, you know, we're a weight-neutral program. We really focus on women feeling better, you know. The, the goal is not is to move away from that narrow mindset of health and to move towards, oh, I can actually lift heavier things than I could yep. 12 weeks ago because it's yep. such a good feeling when that happens. Oh, it's amazing, incredible feeling. Um, and so, you know, you, I wonder, just on top of COVID as well, moving away from three six twelve a little bit, you know, how do setbacks um, change how you think about healthy aging? Like you had a recent sort of setback with breaking your ribs. Yeah, I did. What, yeah. what happened there? Oh my gosh, that was a rude shock. So it was like it was the first picnic I'd been to after the twenty twenty one lockdown. It was like this oh, beautiful yeah. sunny day. Yeah, and I've got one of those great big electric cargo bikes, which you know it's got the long tail. And they're very popular in the inner city in Melbourne. 
and I was taking my two little boys on the back of it and I'd had to get off, get them off, and they were climbing back on very excitedly as they do everything <laughs> and it started to tip because I wasn't holding it properly and the I sort of twisted my body to protect the children but the handlebar got me right in the ribs. Oh. Yeah. And it was one of these things like I was in a bit of shock, I think, and so I got straight back on the bike and, and rode home because I didn't really have a choice. But it wasn't until a few days later that it really kicked in. And it was really like it was such a rude shock because I'm normally so active and I do everything. And, you know, like I got 10 days in I hadn't taken enough pain relief. Embarrassingly, I look after people with broken ribs all the time. Mm. But for myself, I didn't look after myself properly. Sounds like Um, a doctor. Yeah, right. Typical. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I just I felt rubbish. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't sleep properly. And so that was like I realised like, no, I have to take a step back. And, you know, go and see my GP and yep. get some proper help yep. and take some Rehab time off program? work. Pardon? Rehab program as well. Well, yeah, yep. I couldn't do that straight away. But mm. then I had to, yeah, so then I had, but the, the, you know, I'd spent so many years getting strong and building up my deadlifts and, you know, doing push-ups. And I had to go right back to doing, you know, I couldn't do push-ups on the floor. I couldn't oh, take man. weight on my arms. And it's been, it's been a really interesting experience having to not, do kind of exercise to be as push myself as hard as possible, but to exercise to carefully build my strength back up. Yeah. Hold back a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. A bit of patience. Yeah. But it's been, yeah, it's been an interesting experience. And also, you know, it's again, highlights for me the importance of bone health. Yeah. And, and, and so um, why is it that, I mean, a fact you mentioned earlier that I just glossed over. So why do men have a shorter life expectancy but women have the the worse health but longer life expectancy? What what do we know about that? Yeah, the country that's really illustrative of this is actually Russia. Mm -hmm. They've got the biggest gap in life expectancy anywhere Mm -hmm. in the world and it's around 12 years. And in Russia they've got real differences around um, what's acceptable for each gender and so men drink a lot more Mm -hmm. so they often die younger from alcohol, smoking issues. Um, and so, you know, even in the Australian setting, some of that stuff still comes through. Like mm-hmm. the things men are likely to die from younger, um, younger men trauma is a big one. Suicide, which is really devastating. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the leading causes of death, I think. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then obviously things like heart disease and women again live longer, but they're more likely to have things like, um, osteoporosis, arthritis, um, to just and so these physical things they have diseases that aren't going to kill them, but they really impact quality of life. And the countries that have the you know the best gap are the ones with better equality. Yeah, and it comes down to these things, and you know it's where one of these things where improving these some of the, getting rid of some of these outdated gender stereotypes is mm. good for everybody. Yeah, you know for men to go actually. I'm depressed. Yeah. I want to get some help. Yeah. Or for men to be able to, you know, not have to kind of perform in kind of an aggressive masculinity that can often mm. like, or take risks. I remember when I was young, um, probably about 2002, um, I had my first incidence of depression and it wasn't even in the lexicon. Like I didn't even know that depression was a concept. Mm. It, that's how poorly educated people were. And actually no one in my school did, no one in my family really it just wasn't in the kind of public consciousness the way it is now, thanks to organisations like Beyond Blue Origin and Headspace and everything like that. It was just sort of so difficult. And I think now it, it is so front and centre everywhere that um, just really happy to see it being spoken about more openly and more accessible for people. Yeah, I think it's just it's a really wonderful shift in society. Mm. Like 
moving away from the stigma around yeah. mental health. Yeah, I, I think reducing stigma generally across the board is really important. And I mean, I'm not sure why it's sort of concentrated so heavily on mental health or whether it's a vulnerability thing or a perceived vulnerability, but uh, reducing stigma across the board would seem to be a really smart way of going about solving a lot of health problems. A lot of health problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what are some of the practical things also? I mean, we've talked about body health, um, mind health and protecting factors and protective things that we can do to reduce our chances of mental decline and dementia and things like that. What can people really start to do today? To... So all the physical things I've mentioned are yep. really important. Yep. But the other things as well with protecting your mind, mm. things like um, early edu- education is important, but then staying in things that are cognitively challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think as we get older, it can get really easy to do easy things, you know, to not put yourself out there, to not go, I don't know this, because not knowing is uncomfortable. Yeah. And so not being afraid to learn new things, not being afraid to take on challenges and admit you don't know something, that's really important and staying curious, you know. There's so many different things to learn in the in life. You can never you'll never run out. And the other thing as well is living with meaning and purpose. And the mm. research on purpose is so interesting. Yeah. There's a really interesting study where they looked at people and they measured their cognitive function and their sense of purpose in life. And as they followed this cohort and people started to they were an elderly cohort. And so when people passed away, when people passed away, they then were able to do brain autopsies on them. And they found that people who had a higher sense of purpose, even if they had um, higher amounts of what should be damage in the brain, like Alzheimer's disease changes in the brain, still had preserved cognitive function. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I think humans, like, we're pretty amazing. But I think we do have a fundamental need to feel like our life matters. Yeah, absolutely. And so things that people can take away from that is um, working on establishing sort of what your values are, what, what your purpose might be in life from an early stage important? Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, you know, it's something that changes through time, mm-hmm. you know. Like I think kids sometimes, you know, they, they go to school and they're often, you know, Fairly happy with that. They've got something they're working towards. I reckon as a kid, you don't have to think much about purpose. Like, you don't. You it, don't. It's feel like you know. For me, my purpose crisis was when I hit thirty. I was like, "What am I doing here?" Yeah. You know. <laughs> Maybe people have it before or after, but that that for me was a critical point. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, like I think sometimes as well, you know, there's transitions in life, mm. and so sometimes you do have to step back and reevaluate. Yep. Yeah, and I think as well for you know keeping your mind as well. One of the things you know for me. Like you've got, I like the concept of, you know, you've got eudaimonic pleasure, which is that pleasure yep. of deeper sense of meaning. But let's not forget about hedonistic pleasure. Oh. We need a bit of hedonistic Look, pleasure. cake plus purpose is the ultimate combination, yeah, right? 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 <laughs> you know? And like last year, my, my daughter is massively into musical theatre, yep. as am I. And, you know, last year we, we got tickets to go and see Hamilton in Sydney for her birthday. And on our third try, we finally got there. We had this day, we went to Sydney, we swam at, you know, Bondi Icebergs, went to theatre and, like, it was amazing. And I felt really healthy, you know. I felt so great. And you need those little moments in life. Yeah, absolutely. So important. So important. Um, Are there things that you've got on your radar to try and um, work on um, in the next year or period, like new things that you talked about, things that you want to try and experiment with to improve your overall health and wellbeing or just life experience? Gosh, I mean, that's a great question. I haven't thought that much about it. I guess I, I am enjoying, you know, I, the thing I'm really focusing on at the moment is like going out for dinner and, oh, <laughs> you know. Just the basics. Connecting How with good friends. is it? Yeah, Being able to confidently organise events. That's right. That's, yeah. that's where I'm really kind of 
enjoying it at the moment. Yep. I'm enjoying so much keeping my getting my health back. Yeah. I sort of take a bit of an attitude, you know, I don't plan my life specifically. I don't plan my career because sometimes it's a bit what comes up. Totally. And what opportunities come my way. Staying fluid, being like water. Yeah. <laughs> to get a bit spiritual at the end to of the podcast. Spiritual, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, look, how can people connect with you and learn a bit more about your wonderful work and 3612 also? Yep. So you can have a look at Twitter. I think the link should be in the show notes. Yep. Yep. Or also Project 3612, which is just www.project3612.com. And I think you're definitely the most prolific on Twitter. Um, do you do LinkedIn as well or anything else? I'm not that active on yep. – I'm there on LinkedIn, so you can find me, but yep. it's not the best place. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's my most Tw- – Twitter's your go-to. My go-to. Fantastic. And Project 3612, did you say where that is? Yeah, so How the best place is oh, – so, yep. yeah, if you go to the website, you can find us, yep. send us an email. Fantastic. That's the best way to contact And what's us. the URL for that? Um, so www.project3612.com. Yep. Fantastic. Very, very uh, precise. Should have probably had known that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Wonderful conversation and, um, yep, just terrific having you in today. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.